The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Ooh, shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter Ella, we are two generations of geek. This is episode 50, Man on the Moon. Science fiction writer William Leisner joins me to review the Neil Armstrong biopic, First Man, and compare it with a couple of classic space program movies, The Right Stuff and Apollo 13. Ella was busy at college in London during the recording of this episode, but she nevertheless managed to Skype in for a Doctor Who segment featured at the end of the episode. Remember, you can find us online at generationsgeek.com, including blog posts from me and handy links to all our episodes. Plus, check out the Generations Geek Instagram, featuring Ella's geeky adventures. Now, on with the show. William Leisner, welcome to Generations Geek. Thank you for having me. So we've just seen First Man in the theater. Yes. Did you have any immediate thoughts what you thought about this film? It's really a, a real departure from what we've seen in the past with other Hollywood takes on the space exploration and the history of NASA and yeah. the astronauts. It's... Mm, I, 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 you seem a bit tepid on it. I am tepid on okay, it. I okay. Am, I, tepid is a good word for it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly was not impressed. Oh, with, interesting. I, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I, it was, it was a very well made film. It was very well made, you know, technically, visually, it was very good. But I just had no feel for Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong. Well, that's the interesting thing. Whether, you know, whether it's good interesting or bad interesting, <laughs> because <laughs> Neil Armstrong was famous for being an introspective, quiet, introverted guy. Mm -hmm. He never said much about being the first man on the moon. So in some ways, he's like the last guy you expect to see a movie made about. And it stayed true to that. Gosling's performance was very understated. It was very internalized and so it is not a movie that's as easily accessible as some of the other films uh you know for context we both recently rewatched the right stuff and apollo 13 mm -hmm. and those are much more traditional outgoing uh, accessible characters and so yeah, it is It is a really different take and much yeah. more quiet than a lot of people. Quiet dramatically, not quiet in the sound mix. <laughs> no, not quiet in the sound mix. That's uh, that's for certain. Because it really but, puts you vibrating in the capsule yeah. with the uh, astronauts. But, uh, but like you were saying, I mean, yes, he was, you know, famously very introverted. He was not very outgoing. But even when you have him in... Family family situations, you know, with his wife and with his kids, he's still this very stoic, very unemotional person. He 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 never really expresses himself. I assume that we're going to be free with spoilers. Yes. Yes. So spoil away. Spoil away. The film starts. They make it to the moon. 
Yes, they make it to the moon. They make it back. Uh, but early on in the film, we also have uh, Neil and Janet's young daughter, Karen, die. She uh, has some kind of brain tumor, cancerous brain tumor, died at a very young age. I'm not sure what, in, in reality, what age she had died at. But uh, that was, you know, right up at the top of the movie and given as a very important emotional piece of his life mm -hmm. and which carries through the entire movie and we do see him get emotional we do see him get you know mourning his daughter you know or you know early on and then throughout the rest of his life but we don't really get any other kind of emotion for, i mean there there's one moment during the gemini 8 mission when they have the successful docking he actually smiles <laughs> And he actually, you know, shakes hands with uh, with his co-pilot. You know, so he has a small moment of of uh, celebration there before everything goes, uh, you know, wacky doodle and upside down. <laughs> but really, I mean, just throughout the film, it, it, it's just so quiet that it's like, why are we even filming this? It's like, what is, what is actually as harsh as that sounds? Yes. Well, no, I, I completely understand that reaction. Um, I actually quite enjoyed the film and enjoyed well maybe enjoyed isn't quite the right word but i mean i I just found i mean obviously he was very understated and he gives a very internalized performance and i think you can easily argue that it was too internalized but somehow for some reason i found it very compelling to watch him and I mean, it's all kind of projection because you have to kind of imagine what he's going through because right. you, you see that he's... And there are scenes here and there that do illuminate how haunted he is by his daughter's death. There's the one scene where one of the other astronauts comes to see him um, after he's left a, f a funeral for, one of, for um, some of the other astronauts that died in a plane crash and to try to talk to him and he just totally shuts it down and says, you know, do you think I came, do you think I left the funeral because I wanted to talk to someone? Do you think I came out here because I wanted to talk to someone? You know, he's just, he is psychologically incapable, it seems, of talking to anyone, his family included, about the pain that he carries. And so I found that compelling, uh, although... I'm not sure if I can explain why. <laughs> well, which is why I understand completely your reaction, and probably because he's Neil Armstrong. He's the he's the guy who was the first man on the moon. And yeah, he, this famous figure who we never really did get inside of his brain while he was alive. Yeah, and you know probably that's why it's compelling to actually see not him but this representation of him up on the screen reacting to you know this mission or this death or to this fail or to this failed mission but uh this is this is a movie and when you're going to do a movie that is you know essentially a biography of this person you you expect to see a little more depth a little more even though he was not a demonstrative demonstrative man mm -hmm. you expect in a fictionalized biopic 
to at least get a little bit of that. You, you know, he, he would have a moment with his wife. He would have a moment with his sons. He would have a moment with, you know, his his buddies mm-hmm. at in the astronaut corps. Yeah, yeah. And instead, you watch this quiet man <laughs> just, you know, face the challenges with this, with, uh, you know, his reserve, his, you know, and, uh, yeah, and, and maybe it is just my nostalgia for the space pro- program that infused my mm-hmm. enjoyment of the film. Because, uh, yeah, actually, if you step back and try to imagine someone who goes to this film just because, you know, some young fan of Ryan Gosling, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> you know, would it carry them through the film? I don't know, you know, because maybe for me it was more about uh, reliving these past glories and, and seeing the challenges. And even though you don't get into his emotions, you do get to sort of physically, viscerally experience the challenges that they faced with the technology of the time period okay. in yes, a way yes, that yes. you didn't i mean like in the right stuff that's such a raw raw movie it's very brightly lit everything mm-hmm. is you know mm-hmm. even when there's horrible tragedies happening it's you know all very positive and you watch uh, like some of the early flights trying to break the sound barrier and you're just watching the ship you know, like whiz crazily you know past the screen like a ridiculous amount of time <laughs> quite frankly it's like 15 yeah. shots of something whizzing past uh-huh. the screen again yes, that's where in this one when you see neil armstrong on an x-15 flight early in the film it's you sense the claustrophobia the the danger the i mean it just seems like the thing is shaking apart around him and it's so it's so gritty compared to the approach that the right stuff took. Yeah. Uh, or even Apollo 13, although I, I would kind of put Apollo 13 kind of in the middle of those two films where Apollo 13 was more grounded and realistic than the right stuff. Yeah. But then that it's a whole further step to go mm-hmm. to where first man is. Well, Apollo 13 has the benefit of being about a single mission, you know, it really does have a beginning, middle, and end in the, the historical background, yeah. whereas in The Right Stuff, you're covering 15 years of history from Chuck Yeager up to uh, Gordo Cooper's final uh, Mercury flight, and in this one, we're covering from, I think I think it's 63 that it starts up to the moon landing, and it's so it's bunch of different missions yeah. that they're covering. Yeah, so in that way, this is another interesting comparison of the three. Uh, right Stuff is trying to tell so much stuff. Too much and, stuff. And, and First Man is a little bit more focused, but you still have an arc of his uh, career. And then when you get to Apollo 13, that has a little bit of setup at the beginning, but it's primarily just focused on that one mission. And that's where I think both Apollo 13 and First Man are a little bit more accessible, even though you have such a uh, quiet lead in mm-hmm. First Man, mm-hmm. in that because they're more focused, you really do get these characters more close up, as opposed to right stuff that kind of has to flutter around. 
Well, yeah, I mean, right stuff has the problem where it's just too unfocused. Yeah. Uh, as I was rewatching it recently, it occurred to me, you know, we were just talking about this, re just talking about this before we started recording about had we seen this all the way through previously <laughs> and did we actually watch it all the way through? And it, it struck me as I was watching it this recent time is like, this really plays like binging a multi-episode limited series. <laughs> yeah. Because there's there's the Chuck Yeager episode, and then there is the early test pilot episode, and then there's the Sputnik and the recruiting episode. So mm -hmm. it's it really feels, if they were to ever redo the right stuff, they would do it as a you know 10-episode Netflix series. Whereas... Yeah. 30 some years ago they did a they had to do a three hour movie and I you know from what I read it could have been a five or six hour movie from what, what uh, they had shot yeah well it was a huge book mm -hmm. and yeah so it's not, that right stuff the right stuff came out in 1983 and so obviously all these contemporary other ways of <laughs> distributing a thing, <laughs> weren't right. there and so I mean there, there was roots but you, you couldn't could... do a huge budget on a yeah you know a huge budget space epic on television yeah and it had to be a feature fit, feature film and to try to maintain a certain trueness to the book they are, were going to have to try to get the, the, the sort of bigger epic story whereas I think if they could have focused down a little bit it would have been a better film. So I'm going to come right out and say it. Uh, I mean, I recognize the right stuff as having sort of an iconic place in uh, space movie history. And I know that a lot of people are quite fond of it. And uh, But watching it this time, it just did really not grab me. Um, I, it's aged poorly. Uh, it uh, has some structural issues where... They kept, maybe because Sam Shepard was at the peak of his movie star career and he was playing Chuck Yeager, they keep cutting back to Chuck Yeager throughout the whole darn movie. Well, I mean, I think that... And uh... it just, I didn't think that that really... I mean, I, I understand in some cases they're trying to play off his role and how he didn't become an astronaut and whatever, but it just, to me, that was just wasted screen time cutting away from the astronauts, to show Chuck Yeager kind of standing around looking up at the sky. I didn't quite get that. Well, I, I do happen to know some of the background on this because uh, William Goldman, mm -hmm. uh, Academy Award-winning screenwriter, uh, best known for The Princess Bride, uh, was the first screenwriter hired on to adapt Tom Wolfe's uh, book. Mm -hmm. And and he, he had... Uh, he'd, covered a lot of this in his William Goldman covered this in his book Adventures in the Screen Trade ah. about his work on the film and he had decided okay to make this into a film we have to cut out Chuck Yeager <laughs> and we just start with the Mercury 7 or yes the Mercury 7 mm -hmm. and go through that the training the, the launches and all that and then Philip Kaufman was hired on as the director, and he said, "No, I think it's got to be no." I he, he was a, apparently a big aviation and fighter pilot 
fan, and he was like, no, this should really be about Chuck Yeager and about how he really had to write, write stuff and how the Mercury astronauts were just kind of uh, has-been. <laughs> Not put so harshly, but yeah. they, they didn't quite have what Chuck Yeager had, so that's why you have ah. Chuck Yeager you know, riding in on his horse and saying... You know, he busts his ribs and he goes, oh, I can't let them know I bust my ribs or they're not going to let me go up on the plane. And That explains it then, yeah. Because I'm with uh, William Goldman on this. That to, yeah. ma- to make the film, I mean, not to... Not to d- diminish anything that Jaeger did. Yeah, because he obviously has a, uh, played a historic role in the program. Right. But as far as trying to make a film from a giant book... Yeah, it would have made much more sense to cut him out. And and then not only did they have the entire, you know, it's 40 minutes of before they even get to the Sputnik launch. Yeah. But even at that, they keep going back to him. And then they keep going back to him. Yeah, and it just doesn't make sense. There, yeah. there, there's a whole lot of uh, storytelling choices in that film that I question. Yeah, another one that I question was... They try to inject uh, little humorous bits throughout the film. And there's a running joke where, you know, like the Russians do something else. And then we cut to this guy running down the, the halls of some government building. And he bursts into a room to exclaim whatever the Russians have done. And there's a group of people sitting around the table. And they say, yeah, we know. Yeah. And it's like, well... Obviously, they know that's why they're having this meeting. They wouldn't all be gathered there unless they were having a meeting because of this incident that's happened. And so, this guy that's suddenly running to burst in and to say what's happened is at least, you know, two days behind schedule. And and, and so, it it makes... It's it's nonsensical. And it's it's done solely as a joke. And it's like, if you're just going to make up nonsensical things to make a joke that make i mean i i was just scratching my head at that it was ridiculous no. yeah it, it, it was absolutely just a you know like a, you know it was injecting humor into the movie where it's like did you really need to inject humor into it, no. it like, and then you have harry shearer and, and jeff goldblum harry shearer and <laughs> jeff goldblum doing you know like Evan Costello or yeah. whatever. Yeah, that was showing showing stock footage of uh, carnival acrobats and human cannonballs. And I realize that I'm not a fan of right stuff, so I probably should be preparing for Dayton Ward to bust in <laughs> and punch me right in the mouth. But I'm sorry, buddy. I uh, it hasn't aged yeah. well. The the, the humor mean, it's. it's uh, I mean, there's iconic scenes in it. Yes. The scene where the astronauts see the Mercury capsule for the first time, and there's, like, not a window, and they play against the scientists saying that they're going to go to the press that are right there. That's an enjoyable scene. And there's some, and there are some enjoyable character scenes yeah. here and there in the movie, uh, like when there's a big press conference and someone asks, you know, who's going to be the first man in space you know, in orbit or whatever, and all the astronauts mm-hmm. raise their hands. You know, so there's there's these moments right. that and are uh, justifiably seared into one's mind. But 
Ed Harris as John Glenn, I thought was really fantastic. Yes, it's the, you know watching watching the film. There's no question why Ed Harris has become one of the the better character actors that we have yeah. today. You know his scenes with his wife, who has the speech impediment. That's some very nice stuff. Very nice stuff, and where he you know gets on the phone with his wife and says, "You tell Lyndon Johnson, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to get, he can't. Don't you dare step a foot in this house." <laughs> yeah, and John Glenn says so. John yeah, Glenn said so. That's a very satisfying scene. Um, it is Which, weird though. Then it's um, it's weird to watch the right stuff and Apollo thirteen close together because then. There's Ed Harris back, playing a different character, mm-hmm. and it's a little confusing. And then, he, yeah, but I thought where you were going to go was, you, know, you also have a very similar scene with uh, Jim Lavelle's wife and the press officers and these oh, reporters. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you tell you tell them they can't set a foot on our property, and if they want, they can talk to my husband. He'll be back on Monday. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, there is just by its nature, yeah, they have to cover some of the same ground and some of the same scenes, and I mean even some of those scenes, even if they're repeats, they probably did. I mean, right. there's always fictionalization that goes on, mm-hmm. but you know some of those scenes probably did happen in real life, much the same way right. playing out because all these people got through the put through the same ringer with the crazy media right. being on their lawns and yeah, and then there was a similar scene in. Apollo 13, when things went bad, that then the wife was demanding answers, mm-hmm. uh, much like happened in First Man when things went bad with the, on the docking flight, and she couldn't get answers. And they just switched off the... Yeah, the special feed. The special feed, and she had to go get... marching down to <laughs> NASA headquarters saying, what's going on here? So speaking about fictionalization... Uh, it would be interesting to, to to dig deeper into this, and we didn't have time to do it, certainly, on First Man, because we just saw the movie. But um, So in Apollo 13, when we see the Apollo 1 capsule fire, there's this dramatic shot where you see a space-suited hand of one of the astronauts, like, hit up against a window of right, the capsule. Right. But when we see the same incident in First Man, there's this you know, extra external hatch that's over the hatch that has a window in it. And you just get this shot where you see that hatch kind of jolt with the explosion and fire. And so it was purely a dramatic thing in Apollo 13 to show a a shot through the window. Mm -hmm. My guess is that that first man portrayed it more realistically. I I think so too. Than Apollo thirteen, because Apollo thirteen, it was just you know this was a quick bit of background and it yeah. was like a thirty second scene, and so you you it really made it more, you know, instantly jolting to see a hand hit a window, you know, as opposed to just well not just but yeah as as opposed to the way that they've portrayed it in first man well I mean, and it's it is it was it was very powerfully moving in first man but that's because it was an entire scene yeah and you build up more see in first man you're you you're in the capsule much longer you're seeing the men 
trying to, you know, you're seeing them react to the fire as the fire spreads, and so you're more uh, connected to them. So when they cut to that external shot and you see that hatch just, like, vibrate Mm -hmm. with an explosion, you're still feeling so connected to those guys inside, you're just thinking, man, they just got, you know, blasted. This is awful. And so, to me, it was almost a little bit more of a punch yeah, than, yeah. than seeing the hand go up against the uh, window, which is a little bit of an easier emotional shot. Yeah, but... it's, it's 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 very much a, a shortcut, an emotional shortcut, an omen of what's to come with yeah, the yeah. Apollo 13 mystery, whereas opposed to uh, First Man, Neil and Gus knew each other. Yeah. They were they were in the program. They came into the program together, and there was also the the piece in the that comes out in First Man, which I did not know, or I do do not know if it's actually historically accurate. But Gus Grissom was the one that they wanted to be the first man on the moon. Oh yeah, yeah. And so I mean, and so that gives it a whole other piece of emotional weight, where. You know, this is a fr- this is a friend of Neil Armstrong's. Yeah. This is a friend that he know- he f- believes is going to be the first man on the moon, and then he fi- and then he gets that you know historical distinction through his death. That is a a, um, a moving thing about the whole program. You know, these guys came up together and trained together, and then there were various deaths along the way, less dramatic. Then, then the death. There was the story in Apollo thirteen where they were, the one guy was exposed to the measles, and so he gets held back because they're afraid if he comes down with the measles, he's going to be sick while he's in space, and so he's right on the eve of going to the moon, and he doesn't and, get to go, and he gets grounded. But then, of course, the guys don't make it to the moon. Because there's the uh, mishap with Apollo 13, and then he ends up being, as portrayed in the film at least, instrumental in helping right. get them home. And so then it kind of makes you wonder if the roles had been switched, would the other guy that went in his place, would he right. have been as good in the in a, in the troubleshooting role back on Earth? You don't know. Yeah. And so it, that's uh, in Apollo 13, uh, they do a you know. Lavelle is giving an interview about his most harrowing experience. You know, this is something that was had been done before the flight, and he's, you know, during the war, uh, I was coming into an aircraft carrier, and my systems all went down, and I was flying blind, and I couldn't find the aircraft carrier, and then all the lights inside of my cockpit went out. And I thought that it was disaster. I'm going down. I'm going to die now. And then he saw the luminescent algae yeah. in the water. And he says, if the lights hadn't failed, I wouldn't have seen this other way yeah. to direct me directly to the ship. And that's a very close parallel to, you know, if... You know, Gary Sinise's character yeah. had not been grounded. He wouldn't have been there to help bring the Apollo, the uh, crippled capsule back. Yeah, it's crazy. 
The other thing that's crazy, whether how how much of that is real and how much of that is yeah. Hollywood screenwriting <laughs> magic. <laughs> Another thing that the movies bring home, and I thought this worked really well in First Man, is when you just talk about it, especially maybe younger people that aren't as familiar with the actual hardware, and you just talk about, oh, you went in a spaceship to the moon, cool, whatever. But if you really look at the capsules from 40, 50 mm-hmm. <laughs> years ago, you realize how incredibly primitive they are. Yes. You know, you know, and so when you have a movie and you get these close-up shots and you can just see all the screws and rivets and seams and stuff, and you just think, man, these people are just, you know, in these tin cans. There's like nothing to them. Or in the opening scenes of First Man when he's in the X-15, and the thing is so thin that there's a shot, and I'm I'm assuming this is probably realistic. You're going so fast, there's so much friction, the body of the aircraft is starting to heat up, mm-hmm. and there's a shot that sort of looks down beneath his feet, and there you can actually see a glow coming up. Right. Through uh, th- through the whatever little bit of superstructure there is between where his feet are on the pedals the control pedals and then where the actual external skin of the uh, aircraft is yeah and, and, and of course all through that scene you're also hearing you know the, the wavering of what sounds like a single sheet of aluminum and yeah yeah l- little pops there's like you know it's it sounds like they're rivets popping or <laughs> yeah it's pro- or whether it's or overheating because of the friction or whatnot but it's all of these all these we're going to die <laughs> sounds that yeah if yeah you, if you had, if you heard these while you were on your uh, Delta flight to New York yeah you'd go oh, this is this is the end. If you've ever had a chance to go to the Smithsonian or something and see some of the capsules that they have, you know you just can't believe it. It it looks like you could have made it in your backyard. <laughs> We've breezed through a lot of the film. Uh, before we get to the, the the final scenes of First Man, was there anything else that you wanted to uh, to talk about? The thing, something that really struck me is, you know, as opposed to, you know, the right stuff, especially mm-hmm. where it was very much about the victories of the space race. Yeah, in the First Man. It was really not depicted that way. It was really more focused on the why are we spending all this money to send people to the moon when there's so much that can be done down here on Earth? And yeah, you know, there was well, you didn't really feel that you know you and I as long lifelong space nuts mm-hmm. you know have always had this love of the Apollo missions. Yeah. And this really seemed to depict it as something that was really tearing the country apart as much as Vietnam was. And it's not until the the very final scenes where you see the celebrations around the world that you really get a sense that, you know, people really wanted us, or people really thought getting to the moon was a worthwhile uh, venture. Yeah, I, well, it certainly... I agree that in First Man, they gave much more voice to the opposition, if you will. I don't think the film itself overall really endorsed that view. Um, it allowed that you know very real feeling that a lot of people had to be mm-hmm. there. 
but when people would would question, like if people were talking to Neil Armstrong, and they would question it, even through his, you know, stoic reserve of his character, I would get the feeling that he his he would look at those people like what are you nuts it's like he couldn't even understand and and maybe i'm just reading this in but his his reaction to that i i felt was like that he didn't understand why people would even question it you know it's like this is you know this is what we're going to do yeah uh, you know? but yeah but he, but he wasn't you know but because I mean, of, because he was not very vocal about that is yeah, probably yeah. why i got the impression that I, you know, I didn't, you know, and that's also, you know, what contributed to that is, uh, you know, the scene right before Neil leaves his family to go to Canaveral, mm-hmm. and it's not, we're so excited for you, you're going to be the first man on the moon, it's, you're probably going to die. <laughs> Don't you want to tell your kids goodbye before you go off to die? Yeah. So hey, the- kids, I'm going to go to the moon. And I might not, you know, and then, you know, he was a military veteran. He was a war veteran. He knew that, I mean, you know, going off into something that was dangerous but worthwhile was not a brand new experience for him. And it just, it just felt that that was just given way more focus and, you know, not leavened with any kind of positivity. Or you know, not enough positivity, at least in my mind. Oh yeah, yeah. I I think that's a perfectly valid takeaway. I I, I don't think it uh, bothered me as much as it did you, at least on this first viewing. But I completely get where you're coming from because there wasn't a uh, vocal, you know, raw raw component yeah. from some of the other characters and to of course, counterbalance that. And of course, I, I also want to just point out that I'm not with the uh, contingent that were upset that there was not an American flag planting scene in this movie. No, that I didn't. I was kind of wondering how I was going to feel about that after reading, because on the one hand, I thought clearly just this just seems like the nut jobs overreacting. <laughs> I think that would have been a problem. Well, first, we have to talk about the two different kinds of problems. <laughs> There's the problem about just talking about film and storytelling. And then there's the problem where people are just coming at it from a, a super patriotic kind of place. And so that, for me, it's not... Either a, super patriotic or just wanting to be confrontational for the sake of being confrontational. Yes. And for me, from a film structure and storytelling point of view... It would have been a problem if they had devoted more screen minutes to them on the moon. But they did not give a lot of time to them on the moon. And so they it wasn't going to be a tick the box of everything that happened right. on the moon. The movie's called First Man, so in many ways the most significant scene was that first step. Onto the moon. I, I don't think we even saw Buzz Aldrin on the moon. And then... Or if we did, it was like for about five seconds. Yeah, I think there was one shot of him sort of hopping along. And so it wasn't about that. And it's also not like you didn't ever saw the flag. Then, you know, there was a mm-hmm. wider shot where you did see the flag. 
And this brings us to the one thing that I just checked, fact versus fiction. Because the emotional closure of this film, as it's told, is a scene where Neil Armstrong walks off by himself to a crater, and then it's revealed that he has a little bracelet with his deceased daughter's name on it, and he drops it into the crater, leaves it on the moon, and you see him almost at his most, like the second most emotional you've ever seen him. There's one scene earlier in the film where he breaks down and cries alone in a room. And in here, it looked like he was tearing up at at this final moment. And it serves as kind of as a closure to the pain he's carried out of his daughter's death through the whole story. And I was really wondering, is that real? <laughs> because and, and and I'm waiting to find out from you it now. Seems, it seems like very perfect from a storytelling point of view. Well, so I looked it up. All they know is that Neil went off plan and went by himself and stood by that crater alone for a period of time. Apparently, he never otherwise deviated from whatever they were doing. But this one time, he went off by himself and spent some time at that crater. But as per the kind of person he was, he never spoke about it really afterward. So his biographer asked some of his family members what they thought he did there and if he might have left something there and if they thought that he might have brought something of the daughters with him to the moon. A lot of the astronauts, I mean, even before they went to the moon, people you would take things along with you into right, space. Right, Mementos, sometimes as curios to then be able to sell afterward. <laughs> uh, we won't get into that sidebar. Google it. None of them know what he did there. Uh, his sister apparently really liked the idea of thinking that he brought something of the daughters with him. But she doesn't know. So he went there alone. We can only surmise that he was thinking about his daughter. Right. That he was reflecting upon that. As a movie moment, it's a very touching movie moment. It's a perfect movie moment. And if you think of the story just as a story and not think about it being based on a true story, it's a very satisfying scene to put that little end Mm -hmm. on this pain. But it is a fictionalized scene from, it it leaps off from reality that he did go and spend time there alone and did something that he never shared with anyone. So I think it's easy to say that it was an emotional time for him that he spent there, but they don't know what he did. But his family members think that it's possible that he had something with him and maybe even left it there. They think it's possible. But what in the little quick bit that I read it also seemed more like wishful thinking on the part of his sister that it had something to do with the daughter. I have, I have very mixed feelings about how much you fictionalize a true story. Like you, and I'm sure like probably 90% of the people who go see this, they're wondering, well, is that real? Or is that something that they just completely made up for the movie, for the movie, and how much 
you know, and, and how much do you really want to accept of that kind of poetic license in such a, you know, important historical reenactment? Yeah. I, you know, when I saw that, I, my initial reaction was, that seems like something that was imagined. I would, I would have been very surprised if, while you were there looking up online, <laughs> that you had discovered, oh yes, he did bring that bracelet to the moon with him to leave in a crater. Yeah. And just like when... I'm looking at the right stuff. There are scenes in the right stuff that we know were invented, but you know, unless you're going to go and watch the documentaries or read the Wikipedia page, you're you're not going to realize that, and you're going to accept this as fact. So that's the big question for any historical film: just the nature of the medium and the time constraints. You have to make changes. You have to gloss over things or one thing that's very commonly done is lines from four or five people are just given to one character right. in a film, you know, things so that you can tell the story uh, in a reasonable amount of time. And so you're always left wondering these things. And especially when it was something so emotionally pivotal to the story as presented, it really did seem too perfect. It brought, you know, so much clarity to a person who was so often hard to get into his mind. I think the biographer had said that if he had been making the film, he wouldn't have made the choice to show the bracelet, even though it was the biographer who raised the idea. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, his family liked the idea of mm -hmm. Of some memento of the daughter, and I, I did notice in the end credits that his family members were, you know, acknowledged as, you know, being as having played some kind of part yeah. in the film. That makes me feel a little bit better about the film choice of putting that in there. Yeah, you know, if it was something that the screenwriter had decided to throw in there just for the emotional punch. Yeah. Of, of it, I would have been a bit more upset about it. Yeah. Unless you have a heart of stone, you are going to, like the family, say to yourself, oh, I hope that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it would be very satisfying if it were true. Well, there's one more scene left after the bracelet scene because they get back to Earth, they're still in quarantine, and Neil's wife comes to see him in quarantine and they play the scene in a very... It fits with his character. Mm -hmm. They they don't, like, smile and jump up and down and, oh my gosh, and throw themselves against the glass. It's very subdued. It's You just get the sense that they're, they're just kind of overwhelmed about everything that's happened. And then there's just a very couple, very quiet little moments where you see their love for each other in, in a very underplayed way. I'm assuming that maybe that scene didn't work for you because it really is a microcosm of the whole film of his... Exactly. Uh, <laughs> underplayed is the uh, word that I would give to almost the entire film. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to say this was a very reserved man who 
very few people got to really know in real life. You need to give a movie audience something. Instead of just... I mean, there was, you know, going back a couple of scenes where he's first on the moon, and he has the gold visor down on his mm-hmm. helmet. And I was I was watching that, you know, and they do a, they do a long scene of 360 pan of him standing in his... with the gold plate over his face. Mm-hmm. And it was like, that is no, really no different from any of the other <laughs> facial, emotional acting that he's done in the, the film. Oh, man. <laughs> and I'm sure I, you know, it, it, was, it was probably a directorial choice that they didn't want to see him, you know, mm-hmm. looking in awe at the lunar landscape and taking in the fact that here I am, the first man to ever stand on... Mm-hmm. An alien body, but it was just like <laughs> really no different than Ryan Gosling's emotionless <laughs> face. <laughs> I get where you're coming from. I, but as I said earlier, it kind of worked for me, but I understand it places a lot of hurdles between the audience and the character, and it's a very strange choice especially compared to the other films. So uh, we had The Right Stuff from 1983 and Apollo 13 from 1995. And so let's just kind of do a quick recap here. So Mr. Leisner, uh, if you were going to give a grade or a stars, use your rating scale of choice, uh, what do you think of The Right Stuff upon viewing it now? The Right Stuff... It's a good film. It tried to be a great film and didn't quite make it. Okay. It did not it it has not aged particularly well. Uh there are a whole lot of odd choices made by the director and screenwriter that it it's totally all over the place with you know the the the, the comic digressions Mm-hmm. And then the Aborigines in uh, Australia having some kind of connection to the fireflies around Glenn's capsule, yeah, the the whole metaphysical thing, which you know, there there was there was a scientific explanation for those fireflies. That was that was debris yeah. coming off and burning off the capsule. You know, and, and then you have the final scene where you're intercutting. Uh, the celebration at the Astrodome with this erotic fan dance <laughs> intercut with Chuck Yeager hitting this fixed wing altitude record, I believe is what that yeah, was about. I, and it was, it's really all over the place. But I think that there are enough nice pieces in there and taking into account. You know what, Holly? How Hollywood was working in the mm-hmm. late seventies, early eighties, with yeah. yeah, the the whole auteur thing that was going on at that point in time. I mean, it's it, it's a film worth seeing. So I w- I would probably give it a let's let's say a B minus C plus. I actually think that's about where I would fall with it now, um, and it is kind of an iconic film, uh, and and the. The novel it was based on was a you know a big hit in the time and at and so 
it certainly has its place. And if you're a space program buff at all, it's certainly a movie that you have to see. And it's elevated here and there by some really great performances yes. and some solid casting. But but yeah, it just not it has not aged well and the screenplay didn't quite find where it was what what movie it was making. Yeah, uh, I, I th- it really feels like a movie that was made in the editing room rather than at the screenplay yeah. stage. Yeah, I, th- I think that they probably had like, like I said before, they had a lot more movie that they chopped down to yeah. the current state that it is. Okay, and so then let's move to Apollo thirteen. What do you think of that 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 movie? <sighs> Apollo thirteen is probably one of my favorite movies. Uh, probably, you know, top 20 at the, at the very least. Wow, okay. Uh, I, I saw it in the theaters when it first came out, and, you know, watching it again recently, you know, it's tightly written, it feels real, uh, you know, the fact that they had, you know, filmed it in the Vomit Comets for the weightlessness yeah. effects, you know, I mean, the fact that they were able to pull that off in the not quite pre CGI era, but it was almost it was like ninety nine percent all practical yeah. effects in that. And you know, I mean, the performances—it's a tight story, and I give it an A. When you think about it, being nineteen ninety five, so it's over twenty years old. Yeah, and it it seems just as solid now as it did when it came out. It, it does not have the aging issues. Yeah, that the right and, stuff does. Because it's a more focused story, you get to sort of inhabit the characters a little bit more, so that's nice compared to the there's there's so many things that have to go on in the right stuff. You get the you know, you just get these snapshots, mm-hmm. snapshots, snapshots. And so it's nice to just really sit down and experience the Apollo thirteen mission and you're just there with those three guys in that ship. I would definitely give it a, an A as well. I mean, I could sit down and watch that movie again right now. Yes. I, I watched it last night. I just watched it the night before First Man. I could sit and watch it right now. I could never really imagine myself going back and watching the right stuff again in its entirety. I might watch a great scene here and there if I you know, flipped into it on TV, but it, it just does not uh, grab me. As, as emotional as I am about the space program, it doesn't grab me in the same way that Apollo yeah. 13 does. Right. Because one thing that hits me in all of these films is I've been to Kennedy Space Center, and so I've seen a lot of the uh, locations up close. And so that adds this extra level for me when I watch these movies where it's just like, well, yeah, I watched, you know, I was standing right there. I walked right across, you know, they have one of those gantries, the red gantries that the astronauts would walk across. Mm-hmm. They have one of those just on the ground that you can get up and walk across. And just doing that is emotional for me. Uh, and so when you watch some of these things recreated uh, on film, especially the newer the film is and the better the effects are, it's it's so amazing to just be put in those locations. Um, but, okay, then moving on to the our final thoughts on First Man... Uh, well, I guess we don't we don't have to do much about thoughts, yeah. but we can just do the grades. So what, what grade would you give it? I mean, I don't want to grade it too low because it is a very well-made movie. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks great. It sounds great. It's, uh, I was bothered a lot by, by the handheld camera really felt overused. Uh, and I, I really don't feel that I know Neil Armstrong better for having seen this movie. Mm-hmm. But maybe that was the point, that nobody knew who this man was inside. You know, I, I, I hate to come down hard on it, you know, having you know only a couple of hours to reflect on it. But, mm, yeah. you know, I, I would, I don't think I can give it higher than a C. Wow. I say wow only because, well, actually, I don't know why I say wow, because I think it was clear in your discussion about it. <laughs> Since, you know, right at the top, I saw your tepid response. Um, I would give it a much higher grade, uh, even though I acknowledge that it has these problems. And one thing, like when I said I would watch Apollo 13 again right now, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how much rewatchability First Man will have for me. As much as I found it compelling and emotional... Uh, you know, the emotions came through the, the story, not through the character of Neil Armstrong, because he is, you know, such a sort of wall. And so the emotions for me came from reliving uh, these uh, events in the space program that I feel right. so much nostalgia for. Um, so there's a lot of, like, projection that goes onto this film that you bring with you and in some ways, Neil is like this blank canvas upon which <laughs> you're going to put your own yeah. feelings because he's such an inaccessible character. And because he's so inaccessible, will I watch it over and over in the same way that I could find myself watching Apollo 13? Because obviously when you're watching Tom Hanks as, Tom Lo- as uh, John Lovell, th- that's a very accessible and likable character. So on the one hand, I feel like while I was watching the film, part of me just wants to say, well, that was A. That was an A grade. That was a finely produced, uh, crafted film. I enjoyed his understated performance of a man who is known for being a very internal, quiet, reflective man. But I really wonder if I watch it again, here and there, over the next 10, 15, 20 mm. years, would I do it the same amount as I did with Apollo 13? I don't know. When you come back and look at it, you know, down the road, uh, what will it be? Will it have come down, you know, will I say, well, no, that's more of a B, because what what is it with this Neil Armstrong guy? <laughs> I yeah. don't know. You, but, know, it's like, you know, like you, I am I am a uh, child of the Apollo era, and, yeah. you know, I you know, have a lot of love for the history of the space program mm-hmm. and the moon landing and, you know, why, why I probably, why I gave, you know, the right stuff as high a grade that I did, but that was not enough to really carry me through this movie and to get me over the, uh, difficulty I had connecting with the Armstrong character. I, I'm, I'm certainly not saying do not go see this movie if you are interested in seeing this movie. I mean, the, the the scenes on the moon and the scenes of him uh, piloting the uh, test lander are yeah, when you, when technically you, excellent. Yeah, when you get into those more 
technical scenes, technical both from a filmmaking standpoint and from, you know, the fact that you're talking about experimental hardware <laughs> of the space program, you feel the fear and the chaos and uh, mm -hmm. that's going on for yeah. those characters in those yeah. moments because the the uh, the direction the editing the sound mixing i mean it you you are just in those capsules and it's uh, quite stunning but yeah. uh, but then as far as character payoff uh, not so much yeah it's you know all all the emotion comes through the technical pieces of the film yeah and you know i i i shouldn't you know I, i'm not going to ding ryan gosling for it because obviously he had to work with the script that he had but i do, i the emotion the emotion didn't really come through in performances yeah it's a film that will probably be kind of a divisive reaction and I'm back, this time with Ella, who is Skyping in from six hours in the future from London. Ooh. What's up? Uh, not much. It's nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> so you recently had the opportunity to attend a premiere party for Doctor Who. I did. So how did that all come to be? Um, you called me the day before the day of the premiere. And you were like, a Doctor Who premieres tomorrow. Like, where are you going to see it? And I was like, Doctor Who premieres tomorrow? <laughs> where am I going to see it? And then the next uh, morning, I found the only uh, premiere party in, like, all of London. <laughs> and got on the wait list. And, um... A couple of people weren't able to go, so I was confirmed for the event uh, about three minutes after it started. <laughs> and I put on my jacket and ran uh, to the tube and then ran from uh, the tube to a pub in, it's in the city center, um, but it's around lots of like offices. It's like a very old building in the middle of like a bunch of very new mm -hmm. buildings. And, um, I climbed up a very, like, you know, the, the, like, tiny British staircases? Yes. Like, the building just goes up forever. <laughs> um, so I climbed up that to, like, the third floor and found a room full of nerds. Some of them in disguise. Some of them in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> I have to explain that. One of the fun things about this party was that it was covered by a Porter from the famous French uh, newspaper Le Monde. Yeah. And when I ran a uh, translation software to get from the French of the article, instead of saying that people were in costume, it said they were in disguise. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I jump ahead. So there you were. Were you the, were the, uh, the only American in the crowd? No, um, there were two other American girls, one who had just moved to London from the U.S. in January for her and her husband's uh, jobs, and uh, a friend of that girl who had taken a trip to London um, sort of to see her friend, but mostly to be able to watch the Doctor Who premiere <laughs> in London. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they were very sweet. I talked to them a lot. And what did you think? 
of the 13th Doctor. I liked it. I mean, I that first episode is so hard. Yeah. Because, especially just because of the way Doctor Who uh, is, it's so outlandish that you have to sort of brush past the other, your, like, ensemble cast being like, oh, you're an alien who just regenerated and you have a new face and two hearts? Okay, like, <laughs> take a nap on my couch, sleep it off, bro. Yep, everyone just rolls with it. Everyone rolls with it. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited to see her in an episode that's a little bit more, like, meaty. Like, I really want them to get into it with her. Um, if that makes sense, I'm I'm very, very excited that it's a, it's a lady. And um, yes. I hope that they give, that they write some, just some really fantastic episodes for her to just knock out of the park. I've been enjoying it. I, you know, I've seen the other episodes. Yeah, I haven't watched any of the other ones yet. The second one, very likable. Not the most original of plots, but entertaining, and the you know all the the characters are also likable and interesting. And then the third one, that is a Rosa Parks episode, is really quite moving and and uh, educational in a way, and mm-hmm. really sort of stretches what you can do in the uh, Doctor Who format. That you can do these. Uh, sort of important episodes dealing with uh, historical uh, reality and not just be, you know, off in various crazy places around the universe. And you, and so it, it's, uh, it's off to a solid, solid start this new season. Um, I want to go back, though, to some of your adventures at the party because it was amusing in the the LeMond report, the reporter does refer to the pub's bartender as being surly. (laughs) (laughs) That was so funny. Uh, He was, he was the classic uh, surly British bartender. When I walked in, he was sitting at a table and I was kind of like, I'm here for the Doctor Who party. And he was just kind of like upstairs. (laughs) And then I went back down before I um, before it started because I'm of age here. So I was like, I'm in a pub. We're going to watch Doctor Who. I'm getting a pint of cider because I'm not, uh, you know, a, a, re- a, a real, uh, a man's man. <laughs> <laughs> plenty of men drink cider. Uh, plenty of... <laughs> Gluten intolerant men drink cider. <laughs> so I um I went back down, you know, the like three flights of stairs or whatever. He was coming up, just starting to come up to the stairs when I got to the very bottom, and so he kind of stepped out of my way, but then like hesitated because I just kind of bounced onto the ground floor and mm-hmm. kind of stood there, and he was like, like asking if I was looking for the bathroom, and I was like. Um, no, I was just going to order a drink. And he, like, literally, he was, because he was bringing food, he, like, literally sighed and, like, turned and set the food down. And I was kind of like, you can finish, like, what you're doing first if you want. And he was like, no, no, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he, like, got behind the bar. And I was like, um, just a pint of cider, like, it would be great. And he was like, all right. And he starts filling up um, a pint glass. And... 
I'm just like twiddling my thumbs, like looking around the, you know, it's like, it's weird enough for me to be like ordering a drink in a bar and mm-hmm. like the bartender was, yeah, the, like the British bartender in every pub. And, uh, so like 10 seconds go by and he's like, well, we just ran out of this, but I have a, a bottled fruit cider. And I was like, oh, that'd be great. And he, Cause has, he was drawing it from the tap. Yeah. And so he has a pint glass with love. That's like, I don't know, not that, like, not even a quarter, the way full, probably, of Mm -hmm. um, cider. (laughs) And he, uh, so he turns away from the tap, and then he just drinks that all in one go. (laughs) Like, all of it down the hatch. And then he sets the glass down, and he goes into the fridge to get my, like, bottle. (laughs) And he, what kills me here is sometimes I'll order... Um, a drink and the bartender looks at me and just by looking at me uh, can tell that I want a straw, which I don't know what kind of dark, like black <laughs> magic that is, <laughs> but um, I appreciate it. And so he gives me this like glass of fruit he, like, and he like put blueberries in it. <laughs> it. He was a very, he was very like, cause he didn't seem like, Yeah, he wasn't, like, mad. Like, I wasn't, like, irritated Mm -hmm. that he, like, sighed at me. It was just, like, Mm -hmm. so funny. And then, yeah, and then he, like, put blueberries in a straw in, like, my drink for me. (laughs) And gave it to me. Yeah, he was very, um... Yeah, I think surly is the right word. He was pretty funny. (laughs) I think he also didn't really know... It's, like, when you have, like, 25 Doctor Who nerds, (laughs) <laughs> in your party room, like watching Doctor Who, like it's a it's a football game. And there was lots of raucous cheering and applause and such during the oh, the actual yes. show. Yes, very much so. <laughs> and was there any? Um, oh, but you got there just in the nick of time, right? Because I did. I was going to ask if there had been anything beforehand, if they had been like doing trivia or stuff like that, but you um, probably just rushed in at the last moment. I rushed in. I got there about, I think, 20 minutes before it actually um, started. And no, people were just kind of hanging out. The journalist was kind of talking to people. There was one guy that was like live streaming to Australia for some reason. Um, <laughs> but yeah, people were just kind of hanging out. Yeah, and like. A lot of the people there were there for the first time, and so they were like, because it's like this Doctor Who meetup group, and so they were like, everyone was like introducing themselves and mm-hmm. stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was uh, it was fun. It was cute. And didn't you tell me that you uh, you spoke with the live streamer guy? Yeah, after the um, after the episode, he was talking to the people near me, and then he kind of turned to me and was like, "So, like, what did you think?" <laughs> um, and I was like, uh, "It was great. Hi, Australia. It was great." Uh, I don't know how many people were on that live stream, but yeah. <laughs> but here's the hilarious thing. So you, you get to go to a Doctor Who premiere party in yeah. London. So that's yes. really cool because it's, you know, the, the, it's the, the classic, yeah. it's the classic British TV series. You're getting to see it in London, but then all of a sudden you're both getting interviewed for Le Monde in Paris, France and live streaming to Australia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wish we could get a, uh, it was a live stream, but I wonder if if it got recorded as well. It'd be It was like hilarious. a Periscope or something, but I don't even know how to <laughs> Where it was going. begin to find 
that the exact one. Yeah, it was very, it was wild. Yeah, and, and who was it going to? Was it going to a crowd of people? Was it just going to the guy's buddy? Yeah, Do you have any like, idea? No, no clue at all. No idea what was going on. <laughs> he was just like, we're live streaming to Australia. And everybody was like, hey. And I was like, pardon? <laughs> Excuse me? So yet another amazing adventure. I yeah, say another. <laughs> yeah, I say another, although the others haven't been spoken about. But if people turn in for the next episode, yeah, then they'll boy. get even more of your amazing adventures. And in keep tuning in because tomorrow I'm going on a zombie pub crawl. <laughs> is that true? That is a hundred percent true. <laughs> it's going to be straight so... Shaun of the Dead. Um, I don't go out to bars, so, uh, it's going to be a new experience for me. But, um, when the dress code is like, you're only allowed in if you're like zombie-fied, then I'm there. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so me and, uh, my roommate and a few of her friends are going. So I think it's going to be, Great. there's going to be one other American there, um, and I'm sure that we'll get to see some uh, pictures and selfies. Oh, absolutely. If I, well, I, I, there's gotta be, there's gotta, I'm going to see at least five people dressed as Simon Pegg from Shaun of the Dead. And if I don't, oh, I'm going to be disappointed. I mean, borderline, I should go like to Primark tomorrow and buy like a red tie and a collared shirt. And like, <laughs> oh my God, I kind of want to do that now. You uh, might have to. Oh my God. Sh- should I dress up as... Sh- Simon Pegg. <laughs> well, you can't go wrong. I, I have to add some pictures to mm-hmm. the Generations Geek website mm-hmm. from your various adventures so that people can see them when they go there. Yeah, everyone follow us on everything to see all the cool pictures of me. All right. Was there uh, anything else from the uh, Doctor Who premiere party that you wanted to point out? I don't think so. It happened very fast and it was very quick. I left pretty much right afterwards and walked to the tube station with the two other American girls. There's going to be another party for the finale at least. So I'm going to have to figure out how to watch uh, Doctor Who so I can go to that. But yeah, everyone stay tuned. That's all the time we have for this episode. Bill will return in a couple of months to discuss his books, including his Star Trek stories and novels, Tune in next time for episode 51, An American Geek in London, as Alice Skypes in from England for an entire show to tell us about visiting a major J.R.R. Tolkien art exhibit in Oxford, as well as all of her adventures at the huge Destination Star Trek convention in Birmingham. Remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from a red carpet full of Star Trek actors. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny.